Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 17 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. There is a vast chasm of intent between acting in spite and acting despite. Besides our ability as humans to differentiate between the two, it's amazing how quickly we can cover the space between them with a simple choice. However, it's unfortunate we can find ourselves drawn back to spite so easily. We may not be able to remove the challenge in question, but we can train ourselves to put the emotions where they are actually useful. When you act in spite, you include the person in the process in a way where their reaction to your success matters. You are hinging your emotions on them, and this keeps them in power and you off focus and unstable. Choosing to act despite whatever or whomever you are facing keeps a focus on your goal and the strength and the measure of success within you. My guest this episode has been successful on many fronts because of the perspective of maintaining his focus on what could and should be done, and by welcoming the challenges and challengers on the path as part of the journey to the goals, and most importantly, by celebrating the wins and those that worked with him to achieve them. I had the distinct pleasure of working for and with him for many years, and I'm proud to call him a friend. Here's my sit-down with Andy McDonald. Hey, Andy. Scott. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Good. good. Glad you could make it up. I'm glad to be here. Let's start off with where you grew up, family structure, your upbringing. Bring me back to those times and walk me through. I grew up uh, in Snell Grove, Ontario, on my grandparents' farm. Uh, my mom and dad built a house there the year I was born. So uh, in the village of Snell Grove, small village, three or 400 people, and it was everything you'd expect in a small town in Ontario village. We never locked our doors. There was a lot of young family, so I had a lot of friends in the village, and Mom knew as long as I was home, before dark, it was fine. you just phone and say, I'm having dinner at somebody's. Well, it's for dinner. Okay, I'm having dinner at Marty's place. So it was a great village. I had a lot of really good role models growing up. One of them is important in my story, but I had Uncle Bert Wilson, who, um, when I was little, he was my mom's younger brother, and he married later, so he just sort of took me under his wing, and we'd just take off. Had another uncle, my mom's youngest brother, and he was... 15 years older than me, but I used to hang out with them. When they play baseball, I was hanging around like a little kid, so I had a lot of really good, positive role models, and it was safe, and it was fun. At that point, we used to be five miles from town, so Brampton was a small town of about ten or 15,000 people, and we were five miles north of that, and there was nothing in between but farms. I grew up with farmers, and I went to school with farmers, and uh, it was a great upbringing. I had one younger sister, like I said, the house was built on my grandparents' farm. My mother's older brother and their family lived on the other side of the farm lane. So uh, cousins that I treated like brothers and sisters. So we had a we had just a, a really nice, safe upbringing in a, in a pretty cool place. What did your folks do? My dad, uh, when I was young, worked at Canadian Tire. He was there for 25 years. And he managed a Canadian Tire store in, in Brampton. And then when a friend opened a store in Bolton, he moved to Bolton and, and operated the Canadian Tire store there. Mm-hmm. My uncle, Lauren Wilson, who, again, another great influence in my life, he and my dad were really close. He owned a school bus company. And mom started from when we were old enough to get home from school on her own. She started driving a school bus and then worked her career for her brother in the school bus company, first as a driver and then as an administrator. Dad, uh, I guess I was in high school when he moved to the LCBO and then retired as a manager of an LCBO store. So he was in retail. My mom was uh, a school bus company, but their jobs 
weren't as important in my upbringing and really where I am today as what they did on the side. And both were incredibly involved in the community. My dad and two uncles that I've mentioned and a small group of men started the Shinkusi Fire Department in 1958. Volunteer, small department. They converted an old town hall into a fire station. They were given a, a new truck, but used equipment and very little training and and started the Shikusi Volunteer Fire Service. Shortly after that, they were given an ambulance. So they had a VW microbus ambulance, and they ran fire and, and ambulance. They weren't paramedics back then. They were volunteer firefighters with very little training that, that ran a VW microbus all over the north of Brampton, all over Shikusi Township and beyond. My mom taught Sunday school. She was a leader in the 4-H. She was in the Women's Institute. She was the person in the community when anybody needed help, they reached out to. So I you know, learned a lot about public service and helping people through them. I also learned to cook at a very young age because they were never home. Um, they're special people. They're still around. And, and they've had everything to do with who I am. They would drop either of them. Dad, of course, because of the volunteer fire service, would drop whatever he was doing and run off to help other people. My mom was the same way. We had a family that was burned out and ended up at living in our home for a while. You know, that was just who they were. And they managed to juggle raising two children and both working and and really being pillars of the community and dedicating all of their lives into in, helping other people. Were chores and getting your own job early on, was that part of your upbringing too? I started going over with dad to work to help him from... I, I don't know whether I was 10 or 12 years old. I would go over on a Saturday, and when he was going into work at Canadian Tire, and even if it meant some Saturdays, I would sweep the floor. I started working there part-time regularly as soon as I started high school, so I was 13. I started high school young. I'd skipped a grade in public school, so I was young, and he was in Bolton by that point, and I was starting high school at Mayfield Secondary School, and there was buses that ran from Mayfield to Bolton, so on Friday... I would take a bus to Bolton instead of home and started working Friday nights and Saturdays as soon as I could work. It was great because I got to work with my dad, but back then it was also nice to have a little bit of spending money. There weren't a lot of jobs around because Snellgrove was such a small village. You either pump gas at the golf station on the corner or you had to get into Brampton some way, but it was great because uh, I could get to Bolton and I started working with my dad. I also helped out with the bus company as soon as I was old enough other times to, in the summer, help clean buses and things like that. My parents were busy 24 hours a day and happy, incredible people. So you grew up with a pretty good work ethic and the idea, again, that it was good to help other people. And there was no advantage to being idle because they were my role models and it just seemed like as soon as you could work, you could. And it didn't hurt to have a few cents in your pocket either. <laughs> what about hobbies and sports early on? In the country, we played everything. And there was a field between our place and my uncle's home beside the farm lane where we had a ball diamond from as early as I can remember because the older teenagers in the village had it. And we grew up unofficially playing baseball. There was a pond over the hill from our home where I grew up playing hockey from a very young age. We played football down by the creek and there was a flatland. We just, we just were always outside. Uh, we, we had great hills on the farm to toboggan. We built tree forts. We lived in the, in the woods in the bush back there in the summer from a very young age. We would walk back there and, and pitch a tent and spend a night. So we were always outside doing something. As far as organized sports, when organized hockey started when I was a kid, it was all at outdoor rinks. 
and uh, it just didn't turn me on. (laughs) (laughs) So I played a lot of hockey, but not organized hockey. I started playing lacrosse, though, a little later than some of my friends. I guess I was probably eight or nine years old, and that was where I concentrated my efforts. I went on to play junior. I grew up playing in Shinkusi and then played junior for Brampton basketball in high school. But uh, really, we were always active doing something. But they concentrated those efforts in, in basketball, and but primarily lacrosse. I was a lacrosse player growing up. I don't know where this sits chronologically, but you had a story about a goat. I remember uh, you telling me. That lands with the beginning of my life in fire. But to take a step back, Dad and a small group of men in the village started the Shinkusi Fire Department. I was two years old. So... Growing up, I spent a lot of time in the fire hall. We were in the village. You could walk there. It was close. So they had four platoons. They had weekend duty. So one week out of four, Dad was in charge of weekend duty crew, and they'd go over and they'd sweep the floor, clean the ambulance, clean the truck, get it ready. And I started going with him as early as I can remember. I hung around the fire hall. You don't see it often, but if I smell Dettel, it's the ambulance because they wiped everything down in Dettel back then. The smell of fire hose, which was so prevalent with the old canvas jacketed hose, I'm taken back to the days in that hall because they're some of my earliest memories was hanging around that hall. And there were some real characters in the village. They were my friend's dads, and they were the volunteer firefighters. So I grew up hanging around them on those Sunday mornings and loved the stories and the joking. And they didn't get too deeply into the stories when I was around, but they're very warm memories. So... Like we all do in high school, and you're trying to figure where you're going to land and what you're going to do when you grow up. I had thought about a career in medicine. Uh, You know, I'd done well in school and thought, well, maybe I'll get into medicine. And my dad, whenever the conversation came up about what do you want to do when you grow up, he always say, well, if that doesn't work, you can always be a firefighter. Shinkusi had gone full-time. They were instrumental when Bram Ali, the new development, started. The Shinkusi volunteers in Snowgrove were instrumental in getting the station up and running there. So the first Shinkusi station was in Snowgrove. Then they opened one in Bram Ali. And shortly thereafter, in the early 60s, I think it was 63 or 64, it went full-time. I was a very young at the time, but I can remember the conversations between my mom and dad because uh, dad had been one of the original volunteers. And I think the job was his if he'd wanted it. People he hired first to be full-time firefighters had all been volunteers. And I think if Dad hadn't had two very young children and and a good job and responsibilities because it paid nothing back then, he may have become a firefighter. And this is important when you look at my life story. And I think he would have liked to have become a firefighter, but he had other responsibilities, and it was quite a leap. So when he said... You know, in hindsight, when he said, well, if that doesn't work, you can always be a firefighter. I'm sure it was him thinking that is a good thing, but it always sounded like a fallback, not something you'd aspire to. Mm -hmm. Like if nothing else works, you can always be a firefighter. As opposed to, you know, you could always be a firefighter. There's a subtle difference in in how it's said and how it's perceived. So it was never anything I aspired to. I'd spent a lot of time in the fire station and I'd spent a lot of time embracing what it meant to be there, but never appreciated it. I was already going into high school before full-time jobs started to grow. It's funny because it was always in my face, but it's never something I latched onto. But I went to university, graduated with a bachelor's degree, and really didn't know what I was going to do. I had thought about applying to medicine, but I'd really had enough school 
then. So I figured I would take a year off, you know, the old story, take a year off and then figure out what I was going to go back to finish my education because I had just turned 21. And when I got home, and I've told this story a thousand times, young prospective firefighters, literally that day, I know I remember I got home from school, I'd written a physics exam, I was done, I had my BSc, I went, went home and dad got home from work like he did every, every, you know, it was probably a Thursday or Friday. And, you know, proud as the first person in the, in the family to have a degree. And I, I'm certain proud at the time, but there was, again, I, in hindsight, I, I can appreciate the, what this conversation meant to him, but the question invariably came up, well, now what are you going to do? And I said, not sure, but I'm going to take a little bit of time off. And he said, do you plan on living here? And uh, <laughs> with a wink in his eye, I, I had to. I was broke. I said, well, I hope so. And he said, good, you're on the volunteers. You start Sunday. Wow. That was my introduction to the fire service as a firefighter. So I started the volunteers literally that Sunday. It was his weekend duty crew, and they had a couple of openings, uh, two of the, the guys who are a volunteer had gotten on full-time. Their probation was coming to an end. They had to get off the volunteers. Certainly names you'd know. And there was two openings. So my cousin Don Wilson, who I grew up next door to and has always been like a brother to me, uh, the closest thing I've ever had to a brother, he and his brother Tom, we both started the same weekend on the Snowgrove Volunteers. Me, because it was, I was told I had to. Voluntold, yeah. Yeah, I was voluntold, yeah. And it didn't take long to know that that's really what I wanted to do. A lot of the things I didn't appreciate when I was young resonated quickly. I remember the very first day, one of the volunteers who was going full-time, he took me out to drive the truck, and I'd been driving school buses since I could walk, you know, moving them around. And, you know, so driving a fire truck wasn't a huge departure. At least I knew how to shift it and get it down the road. And I remember that day, and it was so exciting. I'd been in that station a thousand times, and I'd been on that truck or the one that preceded it a thousand times. But it, as soon as I sat in the seat, it was entirely different. But it was all of the things that those conversations with those firefighters, my dad, who was always really busy growing up, wonderful man. But we didn't get to spend a lot of time doing things together. Uh, you know, dinner and, and we had vacations, but we, we didn't hang out. Because if he wasn't working, he was busy being a volunteer firefighter or, or paramedic in quotes. So those nights at the fire hall right away were something I really look forward to, like more than I even look forward to playing sports younger. We had training one Monday of the month, and I mean, it was on the calendar for me. I couldn't wait to get there. I was over there for Sunday mornings way more than my weekend duty crew. It was the stories and the camaraderie and bonding with those people, and they were my dad's friends. They were my friend's dads, and I quickly appreciated what it meant you know, what they'd been through. They started with hand-me-down equipment and very little training. And some of the calls I remember. And running the ambulance in that station, most of the calls, not some, but most of the people that they responded to were people they knew. And when I was a kid, the calls were originally dispatched through telephone. Everybody had a black phone in their home and, and picked them up at the same time. But then we got a Plectron. So when a call came in, the Plectron went off and they would say the location. And you knew the people. And, boy, hearing them tell the stories really made me close to them. And I and I loved the camaraderie and thought, ah, boy, what a job to be able to do this professionally and, and have this relationship with your coworkers, the relationship I had with the fellow volunteers. And 
it really helped form where I am today at, you know, after my official career. But we'll go back to that, where you can always be a firefighter went from something that, hey, if nothing else worked out, after spending some time with the volunteers, likely about a year, I knew that that's what I wanted to do professionally. The, the doors were open. There was an opportunity to do it. The Shinkusi Volunteer Fire Station in Snellgrove had converted to a Brampton station in amalgamation in 74. So it had been three or four years since amalgamation. It was a Brampton Volunteer Station. I knew the people in Brampton. A lot of them had been previous volunteers. I, the deputy was you know, such a close friend of my dad's. Back then, it was who you knew. So... It was told to me, you went on the job, it's there. So I didn't jump in right away. I'd been on two years. I, the first opportunity that I was offered, you know, are you going to come in or not, was no. I'd only been a volunteer for a year, and I appreciated it. I just want a little bit more time under my belt. But the following year, I got on full-time. So I started as a volunteer in April of 77. I started professionally in April of 79, so 40 years ago. 40 years ago last month was uh, when I started on the fire service. And a lot of, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wax philosophical here for a second. A lot of the things I didn't appreciate growing up, those stories in the hall and the camaraderie, that feeling of helping people and being in a position to change people's lives in a positive way every single day, I had grown up with. I certainly wasn't there when my dad ran the calls. I wasn't there when my mom taught Sunday school in 4-H and worked in the Women's Institute and baked pies for people who, all the stuff that they did. But I quickly realized why they'd done it. And here I am. That's what got me into the fire service in, in 1979. All of it led up to it. And, and I can put it all together. It's not as if suddenly I decided I wanted to be a firefighter. I didn't see something in TV. It wasn't the money that attracted me to the job because back then it, was, it wasn't a lot of money. I started $12,000 a year. I really feel good about why I wanted to be a firefighter. I admit that it was easy for me to get on when the time came. I still believe I earned it to an extent, but it was there. But I feel good about how I ended up where I did when I walked in there with Branton Fire in 1979. And I owe it all to my parents and those role models that I grew up enjoying being with and not appreciating why until I got on as a volunteer. So where's the goat fit in? My very first call, and this is a funny story. It, it really has nothing. It, it's, it's simply a bit of humor. I was excited about getting on as a volunteer. Like I said, that Sunday, I went over there and I went for a drive in the truck with Brian and I got my gear, which had been handed down I don't know how many times. And a couple of days later, we had a siren back then. So uh, we didn't have pagers yet. You had a plectron in your home. But there was a big siren in the fire station. And when the siren went off, you, you got to the hall. And there was a goat had gotten away from Brampton Livestock Exchange, which was backed onto the farm. One of the guys who'd been a volunteer who helped run the Livestock Exchange wanted this goat caught. And, and I didn't, I had nothing to do that day. So I was going to go out and catch the goat. I had a plan. I had a rope. I had a bucket with some oats in it. Make a long story short, I caught the goat, had the rope around its neck when the siren went off. And I thought, this is my first call. I can't miss it. So I just figured, well, I'll come back and get the goat later. It's got a big, long length of rope around its neck. It should be easy to catch. So I took off to the hall. It was a swather in a driving shed. I remember the farm. 
by the time I got there, I just got there in time for my uncle Lorne, Lorne Wilson, who was the platoon chief in Snowgrove, to tell me to help clean up and pick up. The, my, my introduction was picking up a whole lot of dirty hose in a farmyard. Got back and, of course, hung around the hall for quite a while because it was my first call. And then I thought, well, I better go find the goat. Unfortunately, Cousin Donnie, who started full-time with me or started full-time with me a couple years later, and in his first call as a volunteer, I said, can you come help me find this goat? We went back, and the poor goat had taken off and ran over a, an embankment, got the rope caught, and hung itself. Ouch. So my my very first call as a firefighter ended up with a goat that got caught up in a, in a noose that I had applied <laughs> Not on purpose, and, and hung itself. So it's it's a little anticlimactic. It is. People ask you about your first call, and it wasn't so much the call. I picked up a whole lot of dirty hose at a swather fire. It was the aftermath. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to include that in this. It's, it's a funny story, but it really doesn't fit a lot of this. I'll never forget it. It's, it's forty two years ago, but I'll never forget it. When you transitioned from volunteer to full time, was there additional training that happened, or was it just a title change? How did they do that back then? We had great training with the Snowgrove Volunteers when I got on. Uh, George McGowan, who was a captain in training in Brampton, because we were at Brampton Volunteer Station, came out on those Monday nights and, and organized the training. The training consisted of a couple of hours, whether it was first aid or I remember one on hydro awareness. It was good. It was well organized. George was professional and Great guy and a lot of fun and a good friend. And after two hours of official training, then we'd sit around the hall and tell stories for hours. And I'd listen to these guys. And I wanted that. I had that two years. So I was fairly well trained as as a volunteer. When we got on full time back then, they hired my group. There was 12 and a 14, four weeks apart, to go into training. And we did four weeks of training. So I was in the first group of 12. And George McGowan led the training. So going into the training in Brampton, I knew George. I knew a lot of the firefighters that worked at Station 3. The training was at, at 3. We didn't have a training tower back then. Uh, we did mostly classroom. There was a training ground. There was an old smokehouse we used. It, it was only four weeks of training. I'll never forget it. It was a great bunch. And, you know, that would be a bond with those friends that first four weeks that carry you throughout your career. And then there was my cousin Don and I. There was a couple of other volunteers uh, from other departments in the class, but of of the 12, only three or four of us had any training whatsoever. Most of them went right from green because there was no formal education involved. Most were from Brampton, went from walking in class that first day and didn't know a fire hose from a garden hose and into being on the trucks four weeks later. The second group of 14 started the four weeks later. We were hired to open station five. So while they went through their training for four weeks, we had a great opportunity because the first 12, when we finished our training, we had four weeks of straight day shifts. So we actually worked all four platoons over those four weeks. Small department, there was only about 90 firefighters, I think, when I started. So you got to meet crews from every single platoon. It's great. It's something, boy, I wish you could initiate today. Now, especially a department the size of Brampton or bigger, there's people in the department or other platoons you may never meet literally in your career. Yeah. We had a chance over the four weeks to meet all four platoons. It was a wonderful experience. And then thrown right onto the trucks. Hmm. So off the street for most people, four weeks of training, and then you were a firefighter. And so you weren't really a, a rookie in the truest sense because you had some experience before but what were your rookie years full-time like well 
When I started, it was five years after amalgamation, so there was still the Brampton Shinkusi. Uh, I won't call it rift or divide. It was certainly, it was palpable. A lot of people carried it on only in jest. There was a few people that you could push their buttons if you were from Shinkusi mentioning Brampton or vice versa. But there was still a divide. Because I was Snowgrove, the old guard Brampton still considered it a Ching Hall, even though it had been a Brampton volunteer hall for five years. Mostly because so many of the Shinkusi, the Ching firefighters had come through the volunteer system, and a lot of them through Brampton. We sat down one day and figured there was about 30 of the full-time firefighters in Brampton had been volunteers in Snowgrove and Ching, so that you were Ching. It was interesting because having been a volunteer for a couple of years was great because I had that experience. On the other hand, you were labeled because you were one of the Ching guys for some of the Brampton. I had the benefit of being forewarned. My Uncle Bert, who... I was always so close to, I mentioned in the beginning, who was full-time in Brampton and a lieutenant by the time I started, sat me down and told me what to expect and um, got some wise words. You know nothing. Never tout the fact you've been a volunteer for two years in Snowgrove. You're as green as anybody else. We know better, but to anyone you're working with, just be a rookie. There's certain guys who have that Brampton edge who are going to test you. And there's names I won't say here, but um, be respectful of them and, and don't be goaded into the, you know, the Brampton-Shinkusi thing. I also grew up playing lacrosse in Shinkusi against Brampton. So I grew up with an unhealthy dislike for, <laughs> for everything Brampton because it was a real rivalry. And a lot of the lacrosse players in Brampton I'd played against were now Brampton firefighters. So I went in with a pretty good attitude, but I did well. I ended up in an interesting crew. My captain was a character, and again, good advice from people that I cared about away from the job. My dad and my two uncles were, okay, this is what this guy's like. Just be the rookie, put up with him. You're not going to be there forever, and make the best of it. And I started at Station 5. So the first year, we had 125 calls for the station. For the station. Not the first week, but for the year. And nothing after dark. So it was very slow. It certainly gave me a chance to study a lot, brush up on things, and um, idle hands, in, in my case, just drove me to look for more. So I, I took advantage of it, picked the brains of the guys I worked with. Didn't get a lot of experience those first couple of years, but back then we didn't have uh, full-time communication operators. That's what we called them back then, the communication operators. So we took turns running communications after hours. We had one firefighter who'd been injured who ran it during the day, but nights and weekends, we did. And, and until you'd been on for five years, you took your turn. On our platoon, there was three of us in a group. And I think it was every third month, I'd get to go down to Station 1 and run communications. I used to look forward to it. I actually enjoyed that stint in communications because you were busy. And you really gave you a chance to know the city. And again, to get to know everyone in the platoon. And I also got to go to Station 1 one month out of three where it was busy. So that was my transition. Slow station character in quotations for a captain an interesting crew but i tried to make the best of it every chance i could and funny enough when they opened station five they equipped us with the snowgrove pumper so i started right off the bat driving regularly because i knew the truck my first night shift the captain put me on driving then that doesn't happen any longer 
he figures I wasn't going to be a good firefighter because I'd just gotten on, but I knew that truck like the back of my hand, so you're going to drive. So it was uh, different back then, a whole lot different certainly than it is today for the most part. How far in was it when you decided to transfer to captain? When I started the collective agreement clause regarding promotion said you could write after five years. You could write if your anniversary fell within that fifth year. So I started in April of 79 and there happened to be a captain's exam five years later. So that would have been 84. And because my anniversary was that year, I got to write. I was working at station three, Bert Wilson, my uncle was my captain, believe it or not. I had a great DC and it was obvious there was going to be, the growth was going to come in the department fairly quickly. And a lot of the people in my class wrote in hindsight, looking back, having been on the job for five years, whether I had, and I was still a volunteer. So I had five years professionally, seven years as a volunteer. So I thought, why not write? You're not going to do well. And that was the story. Right this time, there's a lot of people writing. Two classes before us, now eligible to write. There was a big pool and I was told, go ahead and write, see how you do, be good experience for the future. Why not? So I did. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I did pretty well. Once I got into it, I thought this is pretty cool because I, I thought I could, I'd be able to do the job. But when I wrote and did as well as I did, suddenly I was thrown right into it. So I was on the acting list as the number two actor on our platoon as of January the 1st, 1985. So I'd been on the job not even six years. One of the captains on the shift, NRDC, both had medical emergencies over the Christmas vacation. I walked in on our first shift in January. I'd been transferred to Station 1, thinking that one of these days I'm going to get to act. And I was sent to Station 4 to act, and I was never a firefighter again. Uh, because we had a captain and a DC both off. Number 2 actor acted all the time. Both of them were months coming back. There was promotions, and by the end of that year, I was a captain. So it happened very, very quickly. I didn't have any choice. I was sent to Station 4 that day to act. The captain who, who'd had the medical issue was at 4. Gord Thompson was the other captain at 4. Bubbles, too, those of you listening who, who know who Bubbles was. I was put on the aerial, and we had a house fire at, before 10 o'clock in the morning pulled up and the flames are coming out of the second floor. Back then our packs were in suitcases and the back of the truck. So you didn't pull that packed up. You had to get off the truck and get packed up. So I we pulled up right behind the pumper, jumped off, got packed up, and I was ready before Gord. So he said, get in there. So I'd been on the job less than six years. I'd been an actor for two hours. And I had a house fire rolling out of a second story window and I went in with a firefighter. So I was certainly trial by fire and I never looked back. Certainly not every day was like that, but I wrote because it seemed like the thing to do. I did well. And as soon as the acting list came into effect two months later, I was at a working house fire, first one in, and you don't have the opportunity to screw up. Purpose of that part of my career, the story is you don't ease into it. Like I knew right away I had to take this seriously. So I, you know, I worked hard at it. I was never a firefighter again. Like I, I figured even if I did well, I'd be acting for a year or more. 
they opened Station 6 at the end of that year, and I was promoted actually around that time when with a retirement. So I went from volunteer firefighter in 77, full-time in April of 79, to a captain at the end of 85. I think it may have been, may have been January 1st, 86. Boom. And, you know, there's just no room for error. And I always took things seriously. So I, I really worked hard at, at being a captain. Did everything I could to learn everything I needed to do. I guess the next part of my career that helped form where I am was we built the training tower. And there were opportunities during the summer because once the training tower opened, we were there any chance we got. It was really cool. First time we'd ever had one. So they had asked people to come into training to be seconded for the summer because we had a small training department to work as a training officer just during your week of day. So there was people on each platoon. I actually did that the summer before I wrote. So I continued doing that as, as the opportunities arose because it, it gave me firsthand access to all of the training. You know, instead of being on a crew as a captain in the training tower, you know, a couple of days a year, I did it every day for three or four weeks of days during the summer. Got a real good taste for training and the importance of it and got to work with every single firefighter and other captain on the shift. I thought it really broadened my experience. You know, we didn't fight a lot of fires back then. When we did, it was a big one, but I got to spend those summers uh, working hard, really honing my craft and getting to know the job. With many fire departments across North America, that trial by fire scenario hasn't really changed, even after all these years. Looking back on it and knowing we're kind of still there, do you see a more ideal way to bring up a captain? Oh, absolutely. I see a more ideal way to professionalize this business that we're in. That landed me where I landed when I retired. I'll go through the career quickly and then highlight where I saw where things could be better in preparing people for long, happy, healthy careers. Trial by fire. So I took advantage of being seconded into training and got a whole lot more experience, and I thought it helped me become a better captain. But it also highlighted where a lot of people who I... And, and I'm not casting blame on anyone they simply didn't have the opportunity and I saw other captains and firefighters who had been on the job for quite a while when in the tower or we, we also started high angle rescue and, and I spent that summer seconded and, and embraced high angle rescue because they saw the importance of it and I realized quickly but boy boy we're not getting enough training finally had a tower had the opportunity, and the department was doing a good job cycling people through as quickly as we could, but a lot of folks that I thought would be, you know, I'd looked up to, still a tremendous amount of respect for them as, as firefighters and human beings, had really not done a lot of firefighting or, or done a lot of training or had an opportunity to get, you know, hoses in their hand. So that's how I ended up as a captain. I was moved to Station 7 when it opened. It was downtown, was told it was going to be busy. I was asked to be one of the captains to go there, and, and I did. Stayed there for quite a while. Natural progression. I'm jumping through this because I spent quite a few years there. When I was eligible to write for D.C., my D.C.s at the time said, you should write. I loved being a captain. I had a great crew. I loved the action. I loved the camaraderie because I was getting to do other things, spending that time in training, et cetera. I really liked the job, and I had no desire to be a D.C. I had no desire to, I thought, take a step back as far as the action went. I still had things to learn as a captain. Coincidentally, at the same time, I started to spend a little bit more time going to association meetings, 
I was not happy with the relationship between administration and the association. And instead of being someone who just sat back and complained about it, um, I went to meetings, was loud complaining about it. I thought, hey, you know, you can't complain unless you want to get involved. So I ran for the executive for the first time. My first position was on the negotiation committee. I had a lot to do with where I am today. And then there was an opening for secretary. So I ran for secretary to be on the executive. And that gave me more access. We spent a lot more time with administration. So again, same thing. Not unhappy with the people, but not really happy with our labor management relations. I worked hard at being an association executive and really enjoyed it and took every opportunity I could to learn from that. Boy, back then, the only training in labor relations and a lot of what you needed to be a good officer or senior officer was offered by, first of all, the PFOFF until we amalgamated while I was in the executive in the OPFFA. So I took every opportunity to attend every educational seminar I could, all the training through the OPFFA, and it ignited my desire for education again. And when I got on the department, I'm not sure that I wasn't the first person ever hired with a degree. My interview lasted two minutes. And the only question I got from the head of HR was, don't you think you're overeducated? So certainly no one had ever suggested as a first-class firefighter and then as a captain, I needed more formal education. I was already more educated than anybody else in the department, including senior managers. But the training I got through the association executive opened my eyes that there's a whole lot more. It was great being association executive. I encourage anyone who has any interest in getting involved in the association to do so because what a great opportunity to learn. It gives you some insight into how the department's run. You get to meet a whole lot of people in HR and a whole lot of people at City Hall, and it opens your eyes to the possibilities of what else you can do. So I I can only do so much as the association executive. There was a, a new position created as the assistant deputy of operations. So here was my chance to take the next step to make a difference. Knowing it was coming, I went back to school. I thought I'd had enough schooling, but these courses through the OPFFA opened my eyes, and and because I had a degree, I could get into Atkinson at York and take anything I wanted. So I took third and fourth year HR, public administration, labor relations, all the courses that I thought would help me be a good fire chief. And it started with getting my interest peaked, getting involved in the association, seeing you could do more. That little bit of education, I, you know, you thought, oh, well, I got a degree. I can do anything I want in the fire department. No. I have a Bachelor of Science. And most of the stuff I learned in the 70s in university, my, you know, I took a lot of genetics. It's all been debunked or disproven. <laughs> you think science never changes. Oh, yeah, it does. So my degree, all it did was open doors for better education. So I went back to school. I took some fabulous courses at York. And when the opportunity arose to apply for the assistant deputy position, I did. All of this ignited my interest in education, not only just for me, but it showed me where as an industry, as a, I won't use the word profession, I'm going to get into that later, but as an industry, as a business, we had been shortchanging our people because we assumed if you spent 25 years putting out fires, you'd be a great fire chief. When I got the assistant's deputies position, that opened doors for more education because the city encouraged it. It led me to... Queen's University offered a program through the Industrial Relations Center on uh, a certificate in labor relations. So having spent years in the executive and now in administration, and because of my time in the executive, the chief of the day uh, empowered me to get involved a lot in labor relations with the association. And I was very involved with the city manager. We'd gone through raid days. We'd gone through a bit of turmoil as far as labor relations go. 
And the city manager of the day said, you're the guy with the union experience. We want you to get involved. What do you want to do? And I said, well, there's a program at Queen's University through the IRC. It offers certificate in labor relations. I'd like to take it. Do it. So I took the five courses needed to get the certificate as quickly as I could. City paid for it. Awesome. I took advantage of it, and I went to Queen's. There's where my eyes really got opened because now my experience in education and labor relations wasn't limited to the association or experience at a intellectual level through the university courses. The IRC and at Queen's, this, not, this isn't an ad for Queen's or the IRC, but it's taught by practitioners. So here I was, it broadened my experience in labor relations. I wasn't just getting the fire perspective. I was getting a perspective in labor relations from all across the country. Some of the instructors included Buzz Hargrove, at the time was the head of the CAW. We had lawyers and CAOs and HR directors from across the country as students and instructors, and that really opened my eyes. Again, showed me that we were not preparing our folks well for a successful career in fire. And we're doing a disservice to the industry because we weren't necessarily putting the wrong people in place, but we weren't giving them the tools to do the job. I worked with a lot of great senior officers. Certainly by the time I got into senior management, first the assistant deputy and then the deputy's position and, and ultimately chief for quite a few years, I worked with some great peers across the province. But I also worked with a lot of people that I knew had never been given the tools to do the job correctly. When I was a young firefighter looking up, literally looking up in reverence to the senior officers across the province, I don't recall any of them ever being relieved of their jobs. Today it's commonplace. Too many senior officers are terminated. Uh, someone I have a lot of respect for who's well-educated and, as a fire chief says, it's suggested they need to spend more time with their family. It's our tongue-in-cheek way of saying that they've been asked to move on or they've been terminated. It, it's not because they're not good people and they weren't well-intended and they didn't want to be great fire chiefs. We haven't given them the tools. They fall down because they haven't got the education that they need. I don't have any doubt that most of them could put out any fire they can find and would be great incident commanders, but a great incident commander doesn't make you a good fire chief. That's as far as senior administration education. That opened my eyes. And so when I retired, I decided I was given an opportunity, I was going to correct that. So let's shelve that for now. And where I see education is needed, because not everybody's going to be a chief. But with the doors that opened... Because I was always involved in education, first with the IRC, and once I got, got my certificate there, because I had experience in labor and management, I was asked to go back as a coach in the negotiation skills program. That led to 15 years of me spending a lot of my vacation time teaching first as a coach and then as a facilitator with the IRC, both in the labor relations and negotiation skills programs. So 15 years I did two or three weeks a year there, it was introduced to likely a thousand students, all very successful people from every walk of life across this country, coast to coast. They're expensive programs, so they're all very successful people. It showed me that, again, you need a broad form of education, but where you fall down is in that area. Like I said, let, let's show it. That's the senior administration thing. But because I've been so involved in education, I was given opportunities when I retired at Humber College. I'd been on the advisory committee for the recruit program, what was called in the pre-service program at Humber, I think at first as a deputy. So I'd spent likely 10 years as, as an advisor on every course at Humber has to have an advisory committee. And I was on the advisory committee. Uh, I had a new dean come in 
probably five years before I retired, three or four years before I retired, uh, Gina Antonacci, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, adore her because of her broad-mindedness. We had a conversation one day. She was new into the School of Social and Community Services. Her background had been in policing and developing the degree program at Guelph Humber for policing. So when she came in as the new dean in Social and Community Services, she asked me about what post-secondary education is available in fire. And I had to say embarrassingly, because I'd had this conversation with a number of people, particularly at Queens, none. A couple of certificate programs, Dalhousie was up and running then, but nothing formal. Very little education available unless you did it on your own or found something that might pertain, whether it's at a university or a college. But there was really nothing in place. And you know, her reaction was, you got to be kidding me, having been involved in the police service and created the degree program in justice services at Guelph Humber. She said, you know, we should talk one day about getting something in place for fire. I think I can help make that happen. I was busy. She was busy. We never had that talk until I was about to retire. The notice went out to the people on my contact list that I was retiring from the city of Brampton, and I got a note from her saying, I want you to come in, see me. We need to have that talk. And I went in to meet with her and thinking we were going to have a talk about, you know, what may be possible. And I walked in a week after I retired, and she offered me a position under contract at Humber for program development. So... I already knew that we had a large gap in training and education that's available for senior officers and for ultimately for the fire chiefs across the province and across the country. We had conversations for hours in Gina's office about education that was generally available in the fire service, pre-service and beyond. Her background in policing, Humber had a foundations program, still does, in policing that's a two-year diploma program. And nobody across this province gets hired as a police officer until you've completed that program. It's very minimum. And it's a college diploma. No diploma was available in fire. The pre-service programs across the province offered a certificate. In formal post-secondary education in this province, a certificate, that's where it begins and ends. No prior learning recognition for anything else. It doesn't take you to anything. You have a piece of paper that says you can do this. Opens no doors other than for what the certificate is for. So there were no opportunities then for anyone in fire, first of all, to get a diploma that was fire-related that you could use for prior learning recognition to move on to a degree program. There was no degree program in place. If you had been hired over the past 10 years, you may have a pre-service certificate. Back then, it didn't even give you the NFPA certification. Ontario Fire Marshal's office did have a guideline around the pre-service, but it was pretty vague. You had a piece of paper that said, according to Humber or Georgian or Seneca, you know how to be a firefighter. It only trained you to be a firefighter and it was useless in anything else. So Gina basically said, here you go. We can make happen whatever we think we need to make happen. So let's get a degree program in place for the fire service. And the degree program at Guelph Humber for police, you get advanced standing, but you got to have that police diploma. So before we can get the degree program, make it available to a lot of people in fire, if they don't have any prior education at the university level, they can't even get into it if we create something equal to it. So we've got to get a diploma in place. I also suggested, but we need something short-term snippets in a number of topics for the people who want to be chiefs across the province. So she said, fine, let's create a certificate. So we had the Fire Senior Management Certificate. It took a year and a half to develop it in the can, very popular, out there now. We're now giving people the tools they need to be a fire chief for the incumbents. 
or the people that aren't in a position to be able to go back to school and start from scratch and get a degree. And she said, but we've got to get this diploma. So in my research, and she enabled me to do that. I spent a year and a half primarily researching it. I was in the States. I looked at every uh, associate's degree program in the U.S., every degree program in the U.S., and the certificate programs across the country to develop a foundational diploma. The research showed me where we were coming up short and preparing our firefighters. This is a long answer to your question. But we were taking people out of high school. Even then, and that's five years ago, there were still big departments in this province. The only prerequisite to be a firefighter was a high school diploma. Most of them had morphed into wanting the pre-service certificate. The fire marshal's office had just started to recognize NFPA about that time. So the NFPA 1001, 1 and 2, and HAZMAT 472. Now, how you get that certificate varies wildly. I could editorialize and comment on the value of of a nine-month program versus a three-month program, but you still have an NFPA certificate. But all it teaches you to do, generally, I'm simplifying, is put out fires. It is such a small part of what a firefighter does. So when I started to see what was available, in spite of having, at that point, 35 years in the business, I still had blinders on and had interviewed hundreds of firefighters because of the tremendous growth in Brampton during my time in senior administration. It was until I was given that opportunity at Humber to do research into what education could be available to professionalize our industry. I had no idea what was missing. You know, I thought, if you like to help people and you're physically fit, we can mold you into a pretty good firefighter. Wow, what a disservice to the people that we're hiring to do the job because there's so much more that we need to do than that. We can still take that same person. Somebody who's physically fit and like to help people, it's still the same people, but we need to look for more in how we choose them and we need to do a whole lot more in how we prepare them to do the job. We're sending people in ill-equipped. We're sending people into this profession, like sending a rookie firefighter into a fire with no hose and, and no PPE. We can do so much more. So that's where I am today. And I did have the opportunity at Humber to be the architect of their diploma program. Not an ad for Humber, but it's the only one in the province. And it's new and the first cohort's in place. And it's a foundation for what we need to do as an industry to professionalize this service. I'm going to compare us for the sake of comparison to police and paramedics in this province. The police have a foundational program recognized by what was the MTCU, the Ministry of Training Colleges and University. I think it's called something else today. And they've established what that diploma will look like. There's core college courses, there's policing courses, and you go to school for two years and you graduate with a diploma that gives you learning recognition to move into a degree or other diplomas or do other things other than police. But it's a foundation for being a police officer. Paramedics, two-year program minimum, same thing. Core courses and then two years on how to be a paramedic. And it provides the foundation in the core to being a good paramedic. They're two-year diplomas. To me, professionalizes their industries. We're hiring people with high school diplomas. How can we compare as far as the preparation, same people, hiring great people, but the preparation to be a firefighter? If you want to get into the labor relations, from a labor market perspective, all three dangerous professions, two of them you need a minimum two-year diploma. Toronto Police now, you've got to have a degree before you even apply to a high school diploma. And in some cases, a certificate that you can get in three months.
So from an optics perspective, we need to professionalize the service and, and provide more education. That became apparent to me day one when I was given the opportunity to look into this. But when I see where we've been dropping the ball in the education that we provide to be good firefighters, we're hard-pressed to compare ourselves to those other two emergency services, first responder professions in this province, because they're so much better trained and they're so much more professional from an educational perspective. So if we're going to develop a two-year diploma program, and we did, let's provide what we need in there as a foundation to prepare people for this job. Mental health. The two-year program, all four semesters have a mental health component. Physical fitness, absolutely. Ethics. A background in some of the professional aspects of the job. Public education, fire prevention, building construction, legislation. How do we hire people into a profession when they don't know the difference between the three levels of government and what pertains to fire and what doesn't. Labor relations, all of that's included in that two-year foundational diploma. It doesn't include firefighting. So my vision, and we're getting there, I now chair the committee at Humber that's now looking at what the pathway is going to look like to prepare a firefighter. And, And this diploma is new, but again, not an ad for Humber because I'd like to see this available across the province as a minimum. Two-year foundational diploma, and then your pre-service, then your 1001 to be ready to apply to be a firefighter. People in the business roll their eyes and think, three years? Well, where else do you have a job that you know you start today in 2019 as a firefighter in any city across this province? In three years, you're going to be making $110,000 a year. What other jobs across this province do you have that don't require at least three years of education to be able to do that? We look at even trades, but a firefighter has to be, you know, physically fit, prepared mentally and all that sort of stuff. But you're dealing with people in intimate situations, having their very worst day. Across cultures. Across cultures. And if you don't have a background in psychology, sociology, all the core courses that are in a diploma, cross-cultural. In the Humber program, there's an excellent course in diversity and inclusivity. How in the world can you expect somebody to do that professionally if they don't have that background? If you're hiring somebody with a grade 12 education who's physically fit and can pass a test at Festi and throw them on a fire truck. We're doing those people a disservice. We're setting them up to fail. First of all, to make mistakes on the job. But how do you have a long, happy career when you can embrace all of that and be very, very good at it and walk into the job ready to do it? And you don't understand a lot of the things that you're seeing. You don't. You could have a deeper understanding that would help you process things and move past them. Because you're following the people that came before you who, again, I I am not in any way trying to put down some incredible firefighters. So many people I worked with that didn't have the benefit of the education that had incredible careers. But that's all we had to pattern ourselves after. Well, it's a hat tip to them that they were able to do the career without all of that. You're absolutely right. But where are some of them today? Where are they mentally? Where are they physically? When I started on the job, like I said, as a volunteer, I had hand-me-down equipment. If I bent over, my bunker coat barely covered my butt. You know, it was too small. I had a patch coat. We didn't have bunker gear. We had masks in our Scott packs that, I mean, it kept out a little bit of stuff. You shared it. It was the old rubber style that didn't fit your face. We look at that today and laugh and think, can you imagine we went into fires, you know, looking like that? What a bunch of idiots. To send people into the job that aren't prepared to deal with the inclusivity needed to do the job in most cities in Ontario today, if we don't teach people mental readiness and mental 
toughness and, and how to live a healthy life to prepare yourself for the mental and physical rigors of the job, we're sending them in equivalent, like I mentioned earlier, without the PPE they need to do the job. You know, we've taken care of physical PPE. It's the rest of it. And all we need to do is make this education available and eventually, in, in short order, I hope, make it a prerequisite. And we're going to prepare people to do the job. I didn't have it when I started. Uh, you know, I had formal education. I had a degree. I took an opportunity. I really relished the time as I, I spent as a volunteer. And I think by luck, I got through a lot. I got through and can be here to talk to you 40 years later about about my career. But we want the people that are going to be sitting here 40 years from now to come in with a foundation of education and preparedness to be able to walk into the job. And I don't think three years in any way is too much to ask for. I always had an open door policy as a chief. I've spoken to literally hundreds of people, most of them young, who wanted a career in the fire service and said, what do I need to do? And we had a great meeting at Humber last week in our advisory committee about this. There are a few careers where in high school you can decide this is what I want to do that don't have a clear path in place. If you want a job as a lawyer, you're going to graduate from high school at a young age today. You're going to go to university, get your undergrad degree, then you're going to get into a law school, then you're going to article, then you're going to be a lawyer. Same thing for medicine. If you want to be a plumber, you're going to graduate, you're going to apprentice for three years, then you're going to work your way up to being a journeyman plumber. But you can come out of high school and do all of that. In the fire service, with only the pre-service in place, you graduate from high school at 18. You can finish your pre-service, and the colleges across this province will take you. If you're willing to write the check, anybody can get in. And that is a shot at the system. And the ministry's taking a hard look at that. Anybody can write a check and get into a fire service program. You graduate with your 1001 1 and 2 and NFPA 472 at the age of 19. If there's a department ready to hire you, I'm going to say, with few exceptions, you are not ready to be a firefighter. So people would come to me and say, well, you know, what do I need to do to be a firefighter? Well, at that point, by the time I was chief, most of the departments had, had accepted 1001 as a minimum. But I would say, you're pretty young. Or if it was a parent talking to me, I'd be hard-pressed to write that check and send them to a pre-service program at, at 18 because they're not going to be ready when they graduate. And by the time they are ready, they're going to forget everything they've learned and departments aren't going to look at them. Find some sort of education. My opening line with everybody is, no such thing as bad education. Get a college diploma in a trade or, or in something that you can use down the road. Go to university. Get a three-year degree. A great opportunity to mature. It's going to open your eyes. That's what I did. And who knows where you're going to go when you come out the other end. Find something to do that's productive. If it's education, find another program. Get a two-year diploma or a three-year degree minimum and then get into the pre-service. By then you'll be 21. You might have a shot at getting hired. Still pretty young. So that three years exists in a trade or in a profession, as a teacher, anything. Coming out of high school, you're looking at several years of formal education to get into a profession. Let's professionalize the service, make three years the accepted minimum, and get them into these programs that I hope are soon available across the province. And when they come out after three years, then look at it as a job as a firefighter. And I'm not saying to prepare them to be the next chief. I'm saying as a minimum to prepare them to go out there into the field and have safe, happy, productive careers for their sake, for the sake of the people that work with them, and for the citizens that they serve. And that's a solid start because you catch every single person 
before they enter to apply to a department. Yeah. But once they're on, then the next hurdle is preparing firefighters to be captains. And the programs that get put in place exist or will exist eventually across the province, hopefully across Canada. But currently it would take that individual to take their own time to do that or a department to choose to send their people through it. But not many departments do or will do that. So how do we tackle that? Well, we're constrained in many cases by the provisions within a collective agreement. There's still urban departments across this province that promote entirely based on experience and seniority. There was a time when the only education and opportunities that were available were on the job that that somewhat made sense. I, I understand the reasoning at the time, although I still believe there should have been you know, an opportunity for more testing, et cetera. One of the other traditional things that happened across the province that now tie our hands somewhat is that departments used to be in a position to pay for anything external or some education that was external. Now, I think that's quite rare. That's how I took my paramedic program. Yeah. yeah, and that's how I took the program at Queen's. And I know you're in Brampton, my experience through Brampton, I'm, I think the city still does offer some opportunities, but... Limited to what it used to be. Definitely limited to what it used to be. Mm-hmm. But I, I think if we're going to professionalize the service, people also have to get used to the idea that you have to better yourself. And if we make these courses available, and there is going to be extended education courses available through Humber, and once it catches on there, I know they'll be elsewhere. If the market's there, the, the colleges will provide them. And people have to understand that most professions, if you're going to better yourself, you're paying for it yourself. You know, it's rare outside of the public service where if you are working in private industry and you have a bachelor's degree and you need your MBA to move into senior management, you're going to take your MBA on your own. And if you're getting paid 100 grand a year plus to be a firefighter and you want to be a captain, and this is in place today because few courses are available that would make you a better captain or open those doors for you. But if the world changes to the point where those courses are going to be beneficial to becoming a captain or down the road, ideally, as a minimum qualification to be a captain, then you're going to have to pony up and pay a few bucks and take them on your own. I mean, it's career development. It's bettering yourself. Easy for me to say because I got sent to a very expensive program at Queen's on the city's dollar. I think the city benefited from it in the long run, and I certainly have, but I had worked under the old rules and the old opportunities, but they don't exist anymore. If we're going to professionalize the service and we're going to make it better, we're not necessarily going to promote better people, but we're going to take the people that we're going to promote and make them better prepared for the job. They may have to spend a little bit money on their own. Certainly they have the time to do it and, and take these courses. They don't all exist yet. And we're in transition. We've gone from high school education to the certificate to pre-service that didn't exist 20 years ago to now a diploma program new and in place and hopefully expanding. We'll see what falls out of it. And if progressive departments are going to bring some stuff in-house, there's a lot of education that that is still available that people may not realize will make them a better captain, to answer your question, that can be inexpensive and can be something that you can take on your own. Top of my head, anything labor relations is going to make you better in any position of management, even a frontline manager on the fire service. Mental health awareness, you know, beyond R2MR, great program, but there's lots of stuff out there that's going to make you a better captain because you're going to be better prepared to deal with the things that you see every day and the people that work for you. There's a lot of opportunity to go out there. It does two things. First of all, it better prepares you to do the job, but any education stimulates. It did it for me when I went back to school. By the time I got out of university, I was sick at university. When I went back 15 years later, I couldn't wait till Wednesday night. 
I found it energizing and, and it stimulates the brain. And the more you learn, the more you want to learn. That doesn't fit for everybody, but I think it does for the right people. So if we make anything available, even if it's in-house, it's going to spur people on to look for more. With your experience through the association and then on the administrative side, from coming through the ranks, becoming a captain and having your trial by fire experience, and now with your experience of developing these programs and trying to make things better and preparing people better, as pools get bigger and bigger, we're seeing the hoops that you have to jump through to become a captain become less and less, Mm -hmm. down to the point of strictly writing a multiple choice test. Mm -hmm. We have these incredibly high requirements to become a firefighter and rookies have these high expectations, everything you're supposed to have and they're judged by what they know and what they don't know. That same thing doesn't apply to go from a firefighter to one of the most important jobs in the service as a captain. You can write a test and shortly thereafter you're in charge of a crew. No fault to their own because this is the system that exists where we are. Even to become a training officer, you have to submit a resume and do an interview and speak to what you've done since you've got on the department and why you deserve to have the job. So why can't we do that with captains? Wow, that's... uh, I've seen the change over the years. I chaired the committee that reformed the promotional process in Brampton where we added marks for actual acting experience, et cetera, to help structure the list. We went through some major changes that took lessen seniority to an extent and also lessen just the value of a written exam. I know how Brampton ended up where it is today. There's a number of reasons why it's been watered down. It's still a whole lot better than departments that I've not worked directly with but worked with either in my position as a consultant uh, doing reviews who still base it primarily on seniority. There's a difference between the two, and I think it lands somewhere in the middle. The continuum can move towards seniority, can move towards performance, and then in some sort of examination process. So, you know, it slides around between the three. I guess it depends on the the seniority of the department or the experience contained within the department where that continuum will land and that, that needle will land. And it's easy for me to make suggestions on how it can be better because I'm no longer in a position where I have to be able to find the money and the time to do it. But there's some simple things that I think we used to do way back that would help. Whether it's before you write, and that would be so hard to administer, but certainly in the acting list before you ever promoted, needs to spend time in communications. Now I'm talking to General We in the fire service. We as firefighters, and I can say that because I was one for a long time, to get that elephant out of the corner right in the middle of the room and anyone else in the fire service because we're special, we looked at our noses at communication, and I will never use the term, but the support divisions seen by some people, whether it's training or maintenance or fire prevention or public education or whatever. The best way for people to understand how important those partner divisions are is to spend time in them. Yeah, here, here. So anybody who's going to be a captain needs to spend some extended time in communications. You don't necessarily have to dispatch calls, but you need to sit there through some busy shifts and see how complicated that job is and what an integral role they play in you getting to your fire with your crew. Training, absolutely. I really learned a lot in those summers I was seconded in training. Two or three summers I spent working those days with everybody on the shift. I got to know the people better. I got to spend more time doing it. And I really got to understand managing people firsthand, working some time in training. Fire prevention, without a doubt, anybody who before they're promoted as a captain needs to spend some time doing inspections or 
shadowing somebody in fire prevention. Public education, absolutely. Spend a day in maintenance before you start to complain about the fact you've gone three days with a spare truck. Like, you really need to get an appreciation of what the department is. If you're not prepared to do that, you're not prepared to be a captain because what percentage in any department of a captain's job is as a frontline supervisor at a fire? You spend a whole lot more time, most of your time, whether it's dealing with the family, an unfortunate medical call when someone passes away. And if you don't think that that's as as important as knowing which line to pull off the truck, you're crazy. There's all kinds of opportunities to restructure how we do this job, but all of it takes money. And no one knows more than I how difficult it is to be able to find the time to do all that. So we need a paradigm shift in how we look at education and preparedness to do the job. Like I said, by the time I was chief, I spent way more time at City Hall than I did in the stations. And the people at City Hall, if you're dealing with HR or the budget folks, how can you sit there with the city manager and go, I need to budget X number percentage increase in my budget next year because I'm going to change the way I promote captains and I need to take them off the trucks and have people act to bring in overtime so I can stick this gal or guy in fire prevention and training and communications, blah, 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 when we hire people with a grade 12 education. We have to have the image of the service being professionalized before we can get the money and get the time to do some of the things we need to do to professionalize the service. It's got to start at the front end. To continue the city hall thing a bit, I saw the change in my 15 years in senior management, and it was palpable. I saw the change. We used to be able to sit at budget time in front of council and go, give me the money I need or women and children are going to die in their sleep. It's the fire chief. You know, we got to write the check. I did some contract work in my career after I retired in Guelph for two years, and I did a stint as an acting deputy CAO, so really in the budget prep. And the fire chief and paramedic chief reported to me, and here I was on the other side, and I knew that (laughs) (laughs) because I saw by the time I left Brampton and I was on senior management team, you were competing with tax dollars with everyone else on an equal playing field. Actually, it was an equal playing field because you're sitting around a table, everybody else in the room had an MBA or were an engineer or et cetera. So... Back to the education thing and the need to be prepared as a fire chief, you're now competing with people who are way more educated than you unless we provide them the tools. If the service is seen not as a, you know, the hysterical people are going to die in their sleep to providing a business case for everything because we professionalize the service, if we're not seen as that, you're not going to get the time to be able to make the changes we need to make. But if we're going to professionalize the service and make people better prepared to do it, we've got to be willing to have that paradigm shift to start to spend more time and energy and dollars and resources on better preparing everyone, including that Galler guy that wants to be a captain. And of course, like you mentioned with collective agreements, the executive would have to be on board for making those requirements. They would. And I teach two programs, labor relations and negotiation skills for the senior management program in the province. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for the OPFFA and the IFF and all they do. I work a lot with other unions in my role as a consultant, and I know the organized labor tenants around seniority, et cetera, that they're somewhat constrained by, and to look outside that takes a leap. I'm certainly not going to suppose how the OPFFA executive feel, but I think presented the right way, they understand the need. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, they're there to protect their members, and if 
done in the correct way and presented the right way, they want to make them healthy and safe. They want to have the best captains on the trucks. And, and it, nothing's going to happen with a snap of the fingers overnight. It's a shift in how we think. But presented the right way and given the opportunity to help keep the people safe and have the right people on the job. Because, you know, like in senior management, most of your uncomfortable time is dealing with people. <laughs> you know, budgets, eh. City hall, yeah. But it's the 90% of your problems are caused by 5% of your people. That's an old saying that may or may not be true in, in all circumstances, but it's the same as union executive. You know, the less trouble they have dealing with the membership, the more time they can spend on doing good things. So if they can better prepare people to do the job, they're in less trouble. They spend a whole lot less time in arbitration and a whole much more time supporting and promoting good programs. So we need to sell it across the province. And we have a rep on the advisory committee, I'm, I'm not going to name him, from the OPFFA, who certainly is open to the conversation, but we need to change the industry. And they will work. They have people to protect and long-established uh, tenants that, that they need to be able to uphold. But certainly, we're all in it for the same thing. And that's to better prepare people for the future. I see it, and, and I get enthusiastic about this because I do see it. You know, I, there was a time... You know, how are we going to make these changes? But they're coming and, and they're happening. And it's good to see it. And it makes me feel good about the future of the industry. What are some things about project management, networking, and collaboration that people seem to stumble with? I've always admired your ability to stay the course with projects, be personable, connect with people. Does that come naturally in a sense with you? Are there areas that you've had to work on? Do you see where some people can improve to get things done? I think my eyes were open doing the work at Queen's because I was working with executives both on the management and labor side from all across the country. And I realized that our problems, whether it's private or public, emergency services or manufacturing, are all relatively the same. They're all variation of a theme. Like I said, I spent 15 years as a facilitator in the program, and during the class introductions, I always said to every class, I'm going to learn as much from you this week as you're going to learn from us. And you appreciate the fact that you can't stand on this holier than thou. I'm in fire, and I do everything better than anyone else, and you won't understand what we do. Wrong. Any industry, whether it's public or private, it's all about customer service. Some of the things that McDonald's does very well, we can learn to do better in the fire service. So you know, that opened my eyes to the collaboration and, and networking and how important it is. From a practical sense, I learned really quickly once I got in senior management in Brampton Fire and became chief, how well it played at City Hall when you partnered with any other department within the city. Council sees it as if you're sharing or partnering with another department, that, you know, you're sharing resources, you're sharing money, and, and you're sharing the, the work at getting a job done. So I partnered, and even if some of them were on a philosophical level, with as many departments in the city as I could, they loved it. City Hall loved it. It also helped the city. And you know firsthand when we first offered peer support to Parks and Rec, you know, we had an unfortunate drowning. And I can recall how well that was accepted across the city. You know, it it felt really good for us, and, and it was long overdue. But when the goodwill and, and the appreciation at the management level and at council was awesome, it's a lesson that I took to heart and, and did any time you could. Working outside the box, and I don't just mean outside the box and looking at other fire services across the province, but a lot of the stuff that I implemented and learned were looking at things that you wouldn't naturally think would partner well with fire. 
So from an administrative perspective, I learned that it played well at council and it, it helped me get what I needed to benefit the department in many ways. It also goes beyond that in problem solving and looking at how other people do things. We're not special. We tend to think of ourselves as on an island, though. Nothing is like firefighting. We recreate everything on our own way. To our own detriment, uh, historically and, and moving forward. One of the ideas, and we're working on it now, and I'm no longer involved at a professional level with Humber, but I chair the advisory committee, is the fire, paramedic, and police foundational programs all have core common courses, putting them in the same room. Let's take advantage of our first responder partners out there because the three of us, and, and I'm not going to not include correctional services because I think they should be as well from a you know, mental health perspective, but the three of us are on a big island together. So it's shocking how we've worked in isolation in fire and not taken advantage of the expertise in our two partner first responder groups in this province. So, you know, even at that practical level, let's spend more time together because we're going to learn a whole lot. Well, speaking of projects, how did the Fire Life Safety Education Center come to be? So the Fire Life Safety Education Center, the genesis started when I was in the association executive. I was approached by a wonderful man in the city of Brampton who was on the board of the Safety Village. A private member, not a public figure, but a, a businessman in Brampton who sat on the board as an advisor at the Safety Village that Peel Regional Police operated. They had a benefactor who was willing to pay for a fire station in the safety village. There was a plot of concrete and they wanted a little fire station built on it. So the approach to the association, I had been doing some construction at the time, so I had a bit of a background. So association executive decided, what a great idea. Well, you know, we'll get on board. It'd be nice to build the fire station and make it nice instead of having the police do it because they'll mess it up, you know. <laughs> so, you know, Andy, you know how to build things, take over the project. So we did. We built the station down there, and I spent a lot of time. Gary Evans was his name. He's since passed away. Wonderful man. Gary and I spent a lot of time together in fundraising because the land was there, but we still had to raise the money to build the station itself. So we had some great uh, donations in kind, whether it be the brick or the lumber, and, and our guys built it. You know, we got this done, so it didn't just, I didn't snap my fingers and make it happen overnight. It took several months, and we, we spent a lot of time in the fundraising and getting things in place. We were sitting there one day on a picnic table at the safety village, looking at our new creation, thinking how wonderful it was. And Gary asked me, what's available for public education in fire? Kind of foreshadowed my conversation with Gene Antonacci a few years later when I said there's no post-secondary education in fire. I had to say, well, very little. You know, we do do some, but that, you know, this type of place doesn't exist. So he said, well, what if we started to bring fire people through here and run a parallel program? And I thought, that's a pretty good start. I was a captain. I was association executive at the time. I was far from in a position where I could say, yeah, I can make that happen. But I started to think about it. I talked to the chief at the time. There was some uptake, but the problem was the safety village was book solid. You know, there was no time to start a parallel program. So I thought, you know, we should think about doing something for fire. And then in a fateful, sad way, that winter, my crew was called in. We had a fatal fire. We knew that there was three young people in a building and the fire was out and they needed somebody to go in and find them. And the DC called me and said, the other guys are beat, bring your crew over. The townhouse was gutted. We knew roughly where they, we were going to find them. And, you know, this is not to be sensational, but it's where my head was. So I figured I'll go in. You know, I, I'm not going to send one of my guys in. Knowing what we're going to find, I'll do it. In rooting through the second floor, we had a pretty good idea then. The parents had gone out the third floor window and 
the kids were looking for the parents and, you know, we knew roughly where they were and, and I was sad and thinking, you know, how come they didn't get out? And I was taken back to my conversations with Gary and we really need to educate people better so this doesn't happen. We've lost three young lives here that we shouldn't have lost. So I literally committed that night to doing what I could to make a difference. We knew that we weren't going to be able to run a parallel program through the existing safety village. So why don't we look at building something that's specific to fire? Tough to get around to the schools. Yeah, I had a rough idea what it might look like. I don't mean bricks and mortar, but I mean what the program would look like. We should run it seven days a week. We should have it open on weekends to families. We really need to educate people so we don't have any more firefighters having to, in a dangerous kind of way, sift through the remains of a fire that's been gutted looking for three bodies. So that's where it started. Let's see what we can do. So it took me seven years. I said it was going to make it happen, and, and there was nobody that said, you know, it's a crazy idea, but it was, okay, well, how are we going to do that? We don't have any money. But the commissioner at the time, Bob Cranch, because I was on the union executive, we had a lot of contact. Again, that's where doors open when you're in the union executive because you get access to people who you wouldn't as a captain in the fire service. So I mentioned it to Bob, and he was a very practical man. He would never say it's not going to happen, but he really laid out how difficult it was going to be. You know, I had crazy ideas, well... It's going to cost half a million dollars. We'll just go to Chrysler. Not a shot at Chrysler. He, but he said, businesses have all their money committed, so you've got to start more grassroots. And he gave me a very clear idea of how this was going to almost be an impossible task. But I found those three kids. I was committed and I was motivated. And it, I guess in a cathartic way, was something I needed to do. I'd seen a lot over the years. I'd wanted to stop this from happening again. So I could tell a great story about this is how we need to do this. Before we had land, before I had a design, I was meeting with service clubs and Bob introduced me to people. And if the chief was asked to go speak to something, he would say, well, I'm going to say, Andy and I had this pie in the sky idea. We were going to build something and we were going to stop people from dying. And I was sitting with some friends one evening in a backyard in Caledon with a little bonfire going and with a friend of mine who was an architectural draftsman and a Guelph firefighter. And, and I said, you know, I, I want to build this thing and I want it to look like an old fire station. And he took a stick and literally drew in the sand this 19th century fire station building and said, we should have it look like that. And I went, oh, that, that looks really cool. That was on a Saturday night, and literally by Monday evening, that color drawing of that building that we fashioned on, that I still have the original of, he handed to me. Now I had a want and desire because I didn't want to have to find any more kids in a building, and I had something that I could focus on. Now it was more than a dream. I had a picture, and we were going to make this happen. I had a friend I played ball with on weekends who, very successful businessman, and now I started talking to anybody who'd listen about it. We didn't even know what it was going to be called. I want to build a fire education center. And he was a good friend with Barbara Underhill and her husband, Rick Gates. And Barb, a uh, previous world champion figure skater, and Barb lost her daughter, Stephanie, in a, a terrible accident in, in their home. The largest cause of death then, probably today, of children under the age of five are accidents within the home. Friends had started the Stephanie Gates Keepsake Foundation to raise money for programs to prevent childhood uh, injuries and death. And he said, I can hook you up with Barb. So I went and met with Rick the first time and then with Barb, and we immediately connected. 
I, because I was a firefighter and wanted to stop kids from dying in house fires and Barb because she'd lost her daughter and she had a real connection with fire because of what happened the day that Stephanie passed away. Their foundation was structured in a way uh, legally that they couldn't invest in capital. They were going to help build the building. We'll help invest in programs. We're going to make this happen. So now I could go speak to groups and convince them they needed to give me money because I could tell a very sad story. Boy, when Barb and I went out and teamed up and went and spoke to groups, it really got people's attention. So I get back to Bob Cranch. He said, well, where are you going to build it? Well, we first thought about building it down because the city owned land around where the safety village was, but I, I didn't like that idea. I thought it was too far out of town. I wanted to build it in the center of town. And I had a counselor, Gail Miles, became my champion on council. And Gail wanted it built at Shinkusi Park. Council had really put a moratorium on any development in Shinkusi Park. That was a big fight. Not because council didn't believe in the project, but make a long story short, we won. And the land was given to us at Shinkusi Park where it exists today at Central Park Drive. Wonderful location because although it's not geographically in the center of the city, for a lot of people, it's pretty well the center of the city. And so it made it more accessible for school children. And in a landmark where a lot of the city comes to. Yeah. That's why we wanted to design it like an old fire station. So when people saw it, they immediately recognized what it was. It's not just a square block, not built in the back of something else. We wanted an iconic structure that people would identify with. So now I had a drawing and I had the land. I had a lot of gifts in kind lined up. Brampton Brick had already agreed to provide the brick. I had an engineering company through Larry's Connections that were going to architect the whole thing. And there's like a hundred grand. Had a lot of stuff lined up, but we were still way short in money. But the city found the money. There was a park project that had been put on hold. And the question was, can you get it done for this? And the answer was yes. So I started in 96 at that fire with got to make this happen. And seven years later, seven years of talking to every service club in the city and being at council a number of times, I was promoted into administration in 99, and that opened some doors and made it a little bit easier because I was more visible. But it still took seven years, and we opened it in 2003. And a lot of really cool things happened. The first year we had Bramley City Center offer to pay for the busing. And because we were literally immediately booked a year ahead, so you know the old, if you build it, they will come. As soon as we could show that we were booked a year ahead, the next year city council budgeted to pay for the busing. We expanded the number of people who were in the division. Within the first year or two, had a couple of young children who had saved lives and credited what they knew from, you know, we had this wall of heroes that we thought hopefully we'll get somebody on one day, and now there's four or five kids on it. Mm-hmm who credited one famously the first year with house fire and, and, you know, held onto his dad's leg and we'll let him go back into the fire. And when asked, how did you know to do that? And he said, because I learned it at Stephanie's place. I should mention that in it is an apartment. I neglected in saying that there was another model. There was a small firehouse at the Waterloo Region Safety Village where they have a program. So we weren't the first program. We were the first standalone center that focused on it. It it was a program at their safety village. So in it, they had a small apartment. So we created an apartment. We wanted to name it something. And Barb and I, unfortunately, I don't get to see her as much these days. But in a conversation one day, she credits me. I think it was her idea. We decided in Stephanie's honor, we were going to name the apartment after Stephanie. So it was Stephanie's place. It opened on the 10th anniversary of Stephanie's passing, ironically. So these kids that said, I learned it at Stephanie's place, there's now a wall of heroes. So it's working. 
And it's still, unfortunately, as far as I know, the only one. You know, it's one of the most incredible things I've ever had a chance to do. The fact that it's there, and I still periodically have somebody mention it, but for years I had so many people come to me and say, I'm trying to get one built, I can't get the money, how in the world did you do it? Mm-hmm. We were lucky. Uh, Bob Cranch, you know, thank you, Bob, for being the realist. I was, you know, seen as the person that drove that, but he was an equal partner and did so much. And the chief, you know, Verrall Clark at the time was very supportive counsel. It was a perfect storm that we got to do that. And I don't think anybody regrets it for a moment. It's been tremendously successful. It's it's an amazing place. And who knows how many lives we've saved. So it's pretty cool. What stands out for you most from our department hosting the Canadian Fallen Firefighters Memorial Service in Ottawa? We were involved with the CFFF from day one. The Honor Guard introduced me to the CFFF. They were down there the first year. I knew Bob Kirkpatrick in Mississauga, who's been the driving force behind all the stuff in the CFFF for years. And I only ever missed one, even since I retired. I was down there last September. But the second or third one, they had hosts lined up. I said to Bob, I want to host the first one that we possibly can. So we were plugged in for, I think, 09, a couple of years out because they were always choosing the honorary hosts a couple of years ahead of time. So, you know, like, like everything else, if Brampton was going to host it, we were going to take it to another level. The host until that point, honorary hosts were pretty much that. A department rep would say the speech and the host department would have some visible presence. Well, you know, I went back home and said, okay, we're going to host this. You know, we're there every year. The honor guard's part of the color guard. Everybody knows Brampton, incredibly proud of our honor guard. And, their position and their visibility across the country, but we have a standard we need to upkeep. So our mayor, Susan Fennell, had her foundation, and she raised money through her golf tournament and her gala, and she supported community things and and important events. So first of all, there's a gala dinner, and it was somewhat limited at the memorial every weekend. The mayor said, well, if we're going to host this, I'll fund the dinner so we can invite more people. That was the first thing. We formalized the party at the Highlander, which is now epic. And it was the first year that we contacted the Highlander and said, in a formal way, we're coming there. We had our aerial go down. And we also took five or six of our vans down to transport the families around. So before that, one of the rental companies in Ottawa had provided vans. Well, we were going to have Brampton vans. They're all marked. And we continued. Calgary followed us and Calgary used Brampton's vans for three or four years. The traditions continued. So to set the table, we took it to a new level. From a pride perspective, to be able to stand in front of that crowd, I can't describe it. To be the chief and be honored in that way was cool, but I was just a member of the team. What was cool was when other cities hosted it, their honor guard would be there and a half a dozen people. If we included the senior management and a few retirees, there's like 90 people from Brampton. This is the first time this ever happened. So here we are. It was the last year we were at Parliament Hill, which made it better. I'm editorializing again, but it was a completely different feel. It was a beautiful day, so there was hundreds, if not thousands, of people from the public who happened to drop by because you see the pomp and pageantry. But they marched Brampton in separately, and it was. I mean, I'm sitting up there on the stage. First time we had the mayor on the stage, too, because they loved her. So I was there with the mayor, and we're looking at this, and it took my breath away. It was one of the most proudest moments of my career. I've had quite a few, and it was overwhelming to see that. And the number of public, it was the biggest one I ever saw. It got bigger, but it was a nice day. So the thing about hosting it at Parliament Hill was the public could see it and they would join. 
there was far more firefighters because we had such a big contingent from Brampton. To answer your question, it was one of the most proudest moments. The whole weekend, because the families took it to that level, but to be in front of that group and be the chief representing that, I mean, I, I'm using my hands because you were right there to me, was literally overwhelming. I mean, it was just blew my mind. It was awesome. In a more lighthearted way, how did you get involved with FireFit and then hosting regionals and then eventually hosting the nationals? I was deputy by the time I got involved with FireFit, and I was feeling a little removed from you guys, guys and gals. And I missed the camaraderie. You know, the thing that attracted me to the job right from the beginning, that time with those guys in the Snowgrove Fire Hall, when you're sitting in headquarters, you get around to the stations when you could, but we were getting extremely busy. It was right after that huge amount of growth. I got involved in FireFit, I think, in 03. And we'd just gone through the three stations in a year and crazy growth in one of the busiest sections of my career, and I was missing you guys. So I was out with Zeus one night, and um, and I was saying, you know, I, I'd miss this. And he said, why don't you compete? <laughs> because, well, I thought then I was old. Little did I know. And I, I'd never done it. So I yeah, why not? So that's how it started. I started practicing. I hung out with the team. And then as soon as I had competed, then I got to meet Dale and Hillary McRoberts, who run FireFit. And I know for the benefit of your listeners, you know all of this because you were involved as a champion long before I ever got on the team. But Brampton had played such an incredible role in, in advancing first the combat and then FireFit, but it never hosted an event. And, and Hillary said, you know, one of the things we're missing is you've never hosted an event. And I went, book it. <laughs> so not because I needed more work in my life, but because it would benefit the department. Back to hosting the fallen firefighters. It's not about me standing up on that stage. And I mean that. I'd been to that thing three or four years at that point, and I knew how important it was to honor the fallen. What it did for everybody else who attended, the pride in, in the department. It was the same with FireFit. You know, I was deputy at the time, and, and I knew we weren't going to have a whole lot of money to do this, so I had to get sponsorship. I, I knew how much work it was going to be, but I thought, boy, it's going to raise the level and the visibility in the city, and we're not going to have a little event in some parking lot. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. So we did. The first one we hosted was the largest event that they'd ever held. It was bigger than the Nationals that year. At Ching Park, was it not? It was at Ching Park. And Dale and Hillary went, I mean, you can't not do it again. So we did four or five in a row and then did the nationals. And it was the biggest nationals ever. And then did another one, I guess, after that. They're all a tremendous amount of work, but I never wanted to be involved in something and not be the biggest and the best because I wanted anybody when they thought of Brampton Fire that we were going to be the benchmark. And none of it really cost a whole lot of taxpayers money, but it raised the profile Whenever council saw something in the paper about fire, it was the front page of the paper with the nationals. It was the front page of the paper from Ottawa. It was the front page when we were at the Royal York being honored for the Fire Life Safety Education Center with a special fire marshal's award. I was playing the game and it was around public relations, but it wasn't about me. It was to make the department feel good and it was to make the city feel good about the department. And fortunately, because I was always surrounded by such a, a good team and always had people who were willing to step up and carry the load on this stuff, that it worked out well. Every single one of them worked out very well. Speaking of the biggest and the best, let's step back chronologically and tell me about the CN Tower Rappel. I mentioned earlier that 
was seconded into training when we started the high angle rescue. When we got the tower, we got into high angle, and that was Rick Baird. Nobody else was doing it yet. I was seconded the first summer and taught high angle. I got involved. Terry Irwin, who preceded me as chief, he was doing one of the other shifts. There was four of us. Terry and I continued to do more of it off the job and uh, got involved with Code 4 Rescue. I wasn't involved in sales, but I taught programs. We originally taught Niagara Fire how to do the rope rescue in the gorge. We taught the uh, OPP True Team. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I don't recall how the CN Tower thing landed in our lap, but I was uh, with Terry one day and with the team at Code 4, and somebody said we had a chance to rappel off the CN Tower. You can imagine this was back in, would have been 84. It was like, you got to be kidding me. That's so cool. <laughs> so we just, we're going to make this happen. That was more about us at the time. But we had the opportunity doing that too to raise money for the burn unit at the Russ Tilly Burn Center, I think it was, at Wellesley. And um, they made us sign our lives away. I think it was the 10th anniversary of the tower in 85. We had uh, the rope manufacturer out of Georgia was involved, Smokey Caldwell. We trained and... I don't know. It was just cool. That was like, uh, it seemed like a big deal at the time, but I think some of the department stuff is, you know, far more important. It was fun. Then we did the uh, Tyrolean Traverse two years later, which another fundraiser, a lot of fun. So uh, it was, it was, um, from the tower down to the Bathurst street bridge. Street bridge. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was some of the fun stuff that I got to do, but it's because I, offered to be seconded into training. Like it's opening doors. It's thinking outside the box. It's networking. It's taking an opportunity and taking advantage. You know, if you see a door open, run through it. On the other side of it, there's a chance to repel off the CN Tower. On the other side of it, there's a guy saying, you need to build this thing for fire. On the other side of it, there's, yeah, you want to hang out with the guys again, get involved with the combat team. Like, you know, you live in this insular little, you know, I'm going to go to work every day and, and do my job awesome but you can miss so much mm-hmm. and you know i've had an amazing career and an incredible life the key has been the, you know the service in brampton fire but the doors that open and some of the really cool things you got to do beyond showing up at the hall every day are are amazing how'd you get involved with homewood health and camp faces in the ccisf well i got involved chronologically with the CCISF before that back to my days in the executive I was well aware of the importance uh, in critical incident stress and um, supporting our team and then what what formalized when I was chief is the peer support network and I tried to support it whenever I could raise the profile and and so appreciative of everybody on that team and, and what they did I'd never been a team member. I had been involved in a lot of things, you know, I was in the honor guard and, you know, all the, but, but I'd never been a member of, the, of critical incident stress team. So to make up for it, when I was chief, I decided we're going to formalize this and provide as much training and give the team as much support as I could. I remember once I just, I found a few dollars and bought everybody a jacket and a golf shirt. And I was told how much it meant. And um, I'm thinking, wow, it's that, it's that easy. <laughs> um, and I don't mean to make light of it because I had so much respect for everybody on the team. And I was starting to spend a lot of time researching and learning about critical incident stress. And I'm going to tell you a story that I, sh- you know, I should have told at the beginning, but it's more impactful if I tell it now. And it's difficult for me to tell because you know I've been doing this for a long time. When I started as a volunteer, 
back in 1977, it was great to spend that time with my dad. And I talked about why I landed there and how incredible it was. But my mom took me aside. And it's 42 years ago. I don't know when the first time I heard the term PTSD or critical incident stress, but it was long after 42 years ago. But my mom took me aside right at the beginning and said, be careful. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, it's cool. They'll take care of me. And she said, no, 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 be careful. When they started the volunteers, right off the bat, one of the first fires they got, my dad was a young man and he had a two-year-old son at home, me. And he found the body of a two-year-old boy that died in a fire. And he's never told me that. I never heard it from him and it's never been discussed and it was never part of the stories that were told at the fire hall that attracted me to the profession and, and to hanging around with these guys. But my mom told me all about it. And she said he carried it, that little two-year-old boy, and she said it changed him. So he that's the change dad is the only dad I, I've ever known. And she said, be careful. Um, and, and, you know, he's he's awesome. He, he'd be 90 in August and... And, and uh, he's my hero on it. And, and, you know, we still spend as much time together as we can. But she, she said, imagine how, uh, how, uh, how at that time for my mom to recognize that and to recognize that what the impact that that call had on my dad. Like the first 20 years of my career, all we were told was man up, suck it up. You know, you know you, you, it's part of the job. You'll get used to it, blah, blah, blah. And here's my mom at the, the genesis of my career saying, be careful. You're going to see things that are going to change you. So that, that conversation was out of my mind for nearly 20 years. But when given the opportunity to support the peer support team, I remembered that conversation and recognized it and then started to think stuff. And then I, you know, I, I went back to the Fire Life Safety Center and what it did for me to be able to honor those three kids and all the things that I'd done through my career to deal with the operational stress. So if I, if, if all the great work that this team does can be appreciated by buying them a jacket and a golf shirt, I'm going to do it. So when I retired, CCISF asked me to come and speak at their conference. It was the first one that they'd hosted themselves in Niagara Falls. And I was billed as the chief that gets it simply because I'd supported the peer support team. I was not going to go down there and talk about critical incident stress, anything but an authority on all that. But I went down there to do a breakout session on how you can support your team. And I remembered you provided me with some slides. Thank you. Because um, you've opened that door. So... It went over well. I heard from so many people that were on teams, you know, they had, they paid their own way to go to the conference and things like that. So after that, that's five years ago, um, I was asked to come back the next year and be a member of the conference planning board because of my connections through Anita. And we all know Anita, uh, an angel. So <laughs> would you like to join our team? Because, you know, there weren't many of them. And I said, absolutely, I'd love to. And then... I got a call. I know it was from Anita or Renee Jarvis, who chairs the board. I think it was Renee. I have an idea. We're now providing this support for our professionals. But what about the families and the people who are left behind? So she had this dream, not unlike my dream for the Farley Safety Center, to create a camp to support the families. They had a name. It was Camp Faces. We didn't know where we were going to run it. We had no money, but they wanted all the services represented. So would I be interested in joining the advisory board to represent fire? 
And that was one of the quickest decisions I ever made. So I ended up in the CCISF because it was the inaugural conference and I made it really clear that I loved what they were doing. Okay, well then you can support us by being on the team and the Camp Faces was because I was already kind of representing fire and the board. We started in the spring of 2015 and, and we'd already decided we were going to have one that August, although we still didn't have a place to even hold it. And we literally had no money in the budget. In hindsight, we were crazy. We had representatives from police, police association, fire, no medics. I brought that medic rep on board a little bit later. We had an initial meeting at a restaurant near the airport and the meeting was held down there because I was at a conference at the airport and they all came to me. And we, within a few months, found Fern Resort who were incredibly supportive. We engaged a fundraiser. We engaged psychologists who were gonna help at the camp and we ran the first camp on a shoestring budget on a wing and a prayer and a hope that it, the idea would work. And it has been one of the most, you know, I've talked about a couple of the rewarding things in my career, the Farley safety in Ottawa. This is the crowning glory in my career. It's been just phenomenal. It's for the surviving family members of first responders, fire police medics, and correctional officers who die in the line of duty or commit suicide. 29 kids, I think, the first year. This year we're going to have, I think, north of 70 uh, we've outgrown Fern Resort. It's now at Horseshoe Valley. We have five days where families can get together with people who've been through the same thing they have and be real people and not have to deal with the stigma and the problems that arise of being a survivor of a first responder. I have 70 kids. They come back every year and, you know, we love these kids. We, we get to spend time with them. But what it does for them, it's been such an eye-opener for me. I, you know, I grew up as I started the story with, with such a supportive and amazing family. And these kids, regardless of their family dynamics, lost for the most part a dad and are now trying to deal with that. And suicide in particular, you know, somebody takes their own life and you're a child, you know, first of all, if you're willing to talk about that, a lot of the kids don't know that dad took his own life, but if they do, how do you deal with that? And how do your friends deal with it? So, we know kids are bullied at school because their friends can't relate to them anymore. And if you're shunned, that's a form of bullying. So you're left on your own to deal with this terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And your friends can't relate because they haven't been through it. Teachers are not taught how to deal with this. Daughter, who's a teacher, she spends her summers running the camp, says they get zero education on this in the BED program. And then family members. So whether it's a line of duty or you know somebody took their own life, you're now a child trying to deal with the trauma and dealing with people who can't relate. So for five days, they're with other kids who've been through the same thing. And the very first year, my daughter came to me day one and said she just heard two of the kids, six-year-old and eight-year-old, and one of them said to the other, how did your daddy die? And they just sat and had this incredible conversation around it where they can't do that at home. So you know, the first year was, was like I said, on a wing and a prayer. But the overwhelming feeling of accomplishment when it was over. So we run it for five days. I'm there every year, a volunteer. You know, we have counselors who come back and volunteer, wonderful people who continue to come back and spend five days in the middle of their summer with these kids. All of them have some counseling experience. I mean, like camp counseling experience. My daughter, her and Kelsey from the CCISF run the camp. My son runs the teen program. My wife and I are there for the five days. We Last year we had 16 kids from two to six, and 
we have counselors that are with them, but that's worse than herding cats. <laughs> so we make sure that they're all accounted for, and we spend a lot of time with the wee ones. And a couple of them, you know, I am so close to. When you know what they've been through, dad took his life, and here they are, and, and you know, three and four years old. We give them five incredible days that they, oh boy, now the the group is so tight and now we've had it three or four years under our belt the new ones that come in are welcomed in such a way that they immediately feel like they're part of this giant family and we have well over 100 people there now between the kids and the parents and the counselors and our supports are well over 100 and it's all free of charge we raise money anywhere we can typically we keep our heads above water but it's the biggest weekend of my year and (laughs) and the families because we're all there it's uh it's phenomenal and i hope that we're giving these kids the tools, because if they can cope there for five days, we're hoping it gives them coping skills throughout the rest of the year. You know, they get to come back and see all their friends have been through it in five years. And now we've got kids who, boy, one little one, we don't use names, but she was, you know, five or six years old, year one. Now she's like nine or 10 and you see her helping with the little ones. And then they graduated 18 and we're hoping that when they get to be 22 or 23, we're going to get them back as counselors. We want to give them a gap so they get a bit older to be able to deal with it because it's very emotional. We run from Friday afternoon till Tuesday at noon. I get home Tuesday at three o'clock and sleep till you know Wednesday afternoon because physically you're you're going sixteen hours a day chasing these kids around, and emotionally you got to be strong. And we have so much fun, but you just wiped after five days of being on you know the most incredible high without some sort of hallucinogen that you could possibly be on. A lot of responsibility, uh, a lot of fun, but. Oh boy, it's incredible. So yeah, that's how I landed there, and, and I and it's 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 a huge part of my family's life. How did the connection with Homewood Health come to be? As I mentioned, I did a two-year contracting in the city of Guelph. I was at City Hall, and the two chiefs reported to me, and you know went through this reorg, and you know it's hard to break old habits. I tried to raise the profile of the first responder. I had fire and medics. Worked very closely with the police chief, and one of the big entities in Guelph is Homewood. Um, but the city hadn't had a lot of partnerships with Homewood and I saw a natural fit. You know, I'd certainly, by that time I was with the CCISF and had already started doing some speaking on operational stress and first responder mental health. So I approached Homewood and said, you know, how can we partner? They were developing some educational programs around it and they had just opened the Homewood Research Institute. It's not Homewood. It shares a name, but it's a separate charitable foundation that does research. One of their big topics is PTSD. So they were hosting their first gala to raise money for the Institute, and they asked me to chair it. You know, sure, because it helped the city, helped the first responders, police, fire, and medics. We had honor guard there from all three. And afterwards, the president of Homewood Health asked, because my contract was running it, we we all knew that, and said, would I do some work under contract with Homewood just as a liaison? Because they were new into providing PTSR programs for first responders, and they, they knew they're a great organization when it comes to, to clinicians and the work they do, but they didn't have a lot of experience working with the first responder community and what I kind of work as an in-between as a liaison. So they that got me out under Homewood's banner doing some speaking. I spoke at a mental health summit in Vancouver and Toronto and, and did some more, but I get calls from fire chief in Northern Ontario says, I got a guy in crisis, what do I do? Or I can get a call from one of the clinicians or one of the salespeople in Homewood saying we're doing some work with uh, you know a fire department at West and 
you know, how should we do this? I, I don't do a lot of work or spend a lot of time. I work as a liaison. And we've done some great work with a couple of cities like Vancouver. It was really instrumental. And they, they're awesome, uh, that city, when it comes to their mental health preparedness and education and support. And they're a, a great partner with Homewoods. I speak both languages. I am far from an authority on operational stress, far from being an authority in, in emergency services and first responders, but I know enough about both that I'm kind of in the middle helping them out. And I, I do less and less these days because they're well-established and they don't need me as much. It's one of those topics that the reality that we as first responders face terrible situations that are going to impact our mental well-being and our and our overall health uh, has always been there, but now we're finally addressing it. You know, with the presumptive legislation, we can now talk about it. One of the speeches that I do, and I just gave at the conference, you know, on reducing the stigma. I use the metaphorical, you know, kitchen table. You know, how we deal with talking about things at a fire station, and you know, re- but reducing the stigma. Let's let's make it part of the everyday world and first responders, and let's introduce it into education and provide a whole lot more for people getting into the job, so they're prepared the way that you and I weren't because we never had that background. It's all four semesters in the diploma program at Humber have a mental health component. From the day they walk in the door to the day they graduate, they hear a whole lot about it. As departments grow and expand, Brampton's a good example of this. It can be overwhelming at every level, all the way through the ranks. Technology's changing fast and tactics and skills change quickly. It's hard to get all the training in that you need to get in every day. Maybe we can finish off on you giving your thoughts on what's the thing that we can all hold on to when we show up each day to sort of carry us through in the moment and then over the arch of our career. If there's one thing I've learned in my career is it's incredibly important to appreciate the good that you do and that you've done at a call or not at a call or in your life. Research is certainly showing that there's a number of ways to mitigate, and I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on the mental health component mm-hmm. because I th- I think that's what's it's killing us. It's th- the key subject that we need to get better at dealing at. I've talked you know length about education and everything, but if there's one thing, it's it's that. If you want a long, how many times have I said long, happy, healthy career? You need to concentrate on that, and it's doing good because operational stress releases uh, hormones. I, I should know they're in my presentation, but top of my head, I don't remember them right now. And a number of things mitigate it. Exercise, proper diet, proper rest. And one of the things that that research is showing us, it's strong relationships and doing good things. So you know that on the job, you fail more than you succeed. You know, 50% of the plus calls are medical and serious medical calls, you lose more than you save. So you're in a profession where you fail a lot. But do you? You know, if you don't save Mrs. Smith, what can you do to help her family? What can you do to leave the scene better than you found it? All of that stuff, and and like I said at the beginning, feeling good about what you do is really important because you you can't dwell on the fact we lost Mrs. Smith. You leave the scene knowing that you gave the grandkids a dog or you sat and talked with them and asked them about grandma and made them look up to Firefighter Scott and you make them feel good. And regardless of the outcome of the call, you should be able to leave that scene and your way back and for a moment smile, thinking I made it better. It's incredibly important that we realize that. You know, you get into this business because you want to help people. And regardless, even when you fail, you're helping people. Because when they dial 911 and that big red shiny truck shows up, they need to feel good about the fact you're there, even if you can't necessarily save Mrs. Smith.
the other half of that is accomplishing great things away from the hull. Are you going to talk about firefighters? It's about how you live your life. Strong relationships are really important. It's not silly to say when you've had a bad day, you don't have to run home and tell your family what you've been through, but get a hug. Um, I tell people to, you know, when, when you want a job as a firefighter and you want to have that resume with helping in the community, we used to think we needed to hire people who like to help in the community because they want to help. I want to encourage people to get involved in the community and helping people because it creates a habit after you get on the job. Like, I don't know how many young people volunteer for something and as soon as they get on the job, they stop doing it because now they have the job. I don't need to volunteer at the blood donor clinic anymore because I got the job. No, 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 no. It's even more important that you do it now. Coach a team, hang out with your family, help seniors, do whatever you can do away from the job because a lot of the time the job you're going to fail. And regardless of what I said about smiling after the call because you feel better, I mean, you lose a lot of Mrs. Smiths. You get that fix about doing good things off the job. Coach a kid's soccer team and see the joy in those kids' faces when they look up to you and you feel better. Physiologically, it helps eat up some of those negative hormones and the chemical physiological impacts plus the mental impacts and enjoy life. It's easy to say, but it's absolutely important. Don't when you get on the job, stop thinking I need to do things off the job and continue to live that life. Diet, exercise, etc. It's all about feeling good about what you do. Hey, I know a whole lot of people have done a whole lot more better things than I do, but what, what kind of gets me by is knowing some of the good things that I've been able to help Brampton Fire do and people do. And now can't face this. You're not getting even. It's not a way scale. I mean, I had all these terrible things happen at work. You know, I'm going to make up for it by, no, no, no. It's real. This is an incredible job and it's an amazing career. Feel good about it because you're helping people every single day. You know, I got a kid that's a firefighter now. I got skin in this game. My daughter's partner is a firefighter. I've got relatives. I've got friends. I've got you. I got people that I still really care about. That's why I'm still out there talking about it because I want other people to benefit from what I think I know and the time I get to spend now, one of the benefits of doing anything with Homewood is that I get to talk to these amazing scientists at the Research Institute. They're telling me, you know, one of the things you need to do is feel good about the fact that you're doing this. So that it's a long answer to your question, but that's the thing. This is a great career. Don't concentrate on what you accomplish from a practical sense at every single call. Concentrate on the fact that you went in to work and 24 hours later you left the world better than it would have been if you weren't there. I appreciate you doing this. I talk a lot. <laughs> I, got four, I got 40 years of information and trying to... Well, I'm glad you're here to share it. I really oh, appreciate good. it. Thank you. It's good to see you. Okay. Let's grab some lunch. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks.